As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You've taken a wrong turn down Creep Street. Citizens of the Milky Way, my name is Dylan Hackworth. I'm Maureen Bogey. And this is Creep Street. That's right. As always, up top, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Creep Street Podcast, Twitter at Creep Street Pod. And as always, you know we have a Patreon. We sure do. And right now, I'm going to give out a shout to our top tier patrons, the Creep Street Elite, the Creep Street Connoisseurs. Mm -hmm. The creme de la creme. That's right. And here they are. The Dream, James Watkins. The Finnish Face, Via Alunthist. The British Bonebreaker, Bex Martin. The vivacious Vicky McHugh. The tenacious Teresa Hackworth. The madman Marcus Hall. The heartbreak kid Chris Hackworth. The oh-so-suave Sean Richardson. The notorious Nicholas Barker. And the terrified Taylor Lash Mass. Ooh, you know I love hearing those names. Oh, I love hearing, it's like hearing poetry every single episode. It really, really is if you want to join them. Ooh, yes, please, go to, if you want to join them, go to patreon.com backslash creepstreetpodcast. A uh, real quick note, oh, fun okay. note. Before we go on to this week's episode, last week we talked about Netta Fenario, her strange death. And remember, I could not get over the blackening of the silver. I know, you you could not, you could not just understand it. And you could not accept it as fact. Uh, and one thing you said, that the sources that you mentioned, the acidic sweat, that mm-hmm. could do it. Well, I remember we briefly mentioned York Knife. We were like, man, I wonder what New York Knife would think. Yes, And he gave us an interesting, something that does turn silver black, that Mm -hmm. darkens silver, is sulfur. 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 So another point for the demonic, uh, the scary. So that's a little spooky scary. A little bit spooky scary. But yeah, thank you to York Knife for for letting us know that little bit of knowledge. Because I figured, I wondered if there was something, but who knows? I'm glad glad he gave us that little nugget of info, so who knows? Yes. Oh, that is a very interesting, interesting point. That's right. I'm curious about that. Check out York Knife on Instagram. Very cool stuff. But you know what? Nina Fenario was one woman. Absolutely. She was one hell of a woman. One hell of a gal. Mm-hmm, yeah. But today's episode, it's about pairs. Excuse me? Couplets. Oh? You see, the title of today's episode is Two Tales of Twisted Twins. 
Oh my gosh. Didn't know whether to call it Twin Tales of Twisted Twins or Two Tales of Twisted Twins because can you say twins twice? I mean, I think the whole point of saying twins is that anything is possible if it's twice. You know, I, I, the twins are twice. There's not thrice, it's twice. They're, and they're not mice, they're rice. This is turning into a Dr. Seuss book. Yes. But I am so excited about this. You guys, I think a lot of our listeners out there, I, I really think all of all people, but especially little girls, there's something about it when you're growing up, you're like, I really think that I've got a long lost twin sister, yeah. you know? And I think a lot of that comes from uh, the parent trap. Probably, um, yeah. You know, and that's just, it's just like, you always are like, oh my God, there's gotta be some sort of someone out there. Not that these were long lost twins that we're talking about here. Right, these just, certainly were like, not lost twins. No, but there's just always a fascination about twins, whether it is their abilities to connect with each other, or if it's like, it's that old commercial where they go, and twins? Yes, yes. Well, our second tale was recommended to us quite a bit. I know Adam Archer recommended it once. I think a few other people did. Forgive me. I know a few people have recommended it. Sorry, off the top of my head, I can't remember. I just remember our pal Adam Archer had even re- uh, recommended this once. Mm-hmm. But it was one of those things. Such an amazing story, but I wasn't sure if it was enough to fill a full episode. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't you know it, the oh so suave. <gasps> Sean Richardson okay. sent us this video that happened about, I think it was 2008, 2009. Okay. An insane incident involving twins. <gasps> and it was like, you know what? This is it. This is it. We're going to make a twins episode. It's time. It's an, it's time. It's time. The source for my first story, I'm going to wait till after I'm done telling it because it's one of those, it, the title gives it away. It's an excellent, excellent source. Can't wait to give it a shout out here at the end of the story, but I will. Let's begin our story with the Erickson twins. Okay, the Erickson twins. Interesting. Let's, okay. Let's jump back to May of 2008. Ursula and Sabina were a pair of Swedish twins in their late 30s at the time of this event. Okay. It was May 16th, 2008, and the Ericsson sisters had just arrived in Liverpool, UK, after taking a ferry, it is believed, from Sabina's home in Mallow in County Cork, Ireland. Okay. Ursula had likewise traveled there from her home in the U.S. to visit her sister. Oh, oh, okay. So they were taking a little trip over to Liverpool. So they weren't. The so they were not living together or well, anything. No, not living together. So they had arrived in Liverpool about 8:30 a.m. the morning of May 17th, and from there, this is it. Immediately, just gets weird. Yeah. From there, they went directly to the local St. Anne's police station there in Liverpool. The reason being that Sabina was concerned about the safety of her children back in Ireland, which my first thing was like, well, one, what would have happened since you left to make you fear for their safety? Mm-hmm. And and secondly, why aren't you fucking there? Why why the first second you land? Yeah, I'm so In the confused. UK, do you run to the police? If there was something you're concerned about, why did you leave? Uh, not that anything couldn't have happened in between there, but I was just saying, a little weird. Or just... If something had happened, why isn't she immediately going back? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like, ah, this is just very strange. Well, Liverpool police contacted police in Dublin, and they promised to do a wellness check. Oh, okay, okay. This makes sense. This is Home Alone, basically, Uh, by the way. Okay. 
So at 11.30 a.m., the sisters boarded a National Express coach to London, or at least it's believed that's what they did. Mm -hmm. Now, no witness from either the ferry or the train was able to confirm that they were on those rides, even though they're almost certain they were. It's not yeah. like it was a point. It's just they're just saying that no one took notice. Yeah, you can kind of blend it. It's, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Yeah. Strangely, the sisters got off the train at Keel Station, which should be noted is not a scheduled rest stop. Why? is not sure, but the police report states that they got off there because they were either feeling unwell, but the bus driver has also said that the sisters were behaving bizarrely. Mm -hmm. Apparently, both sisters were clutching their luggage, having refused to have it stowed away with everyone else's luggage under the bus. Right. So the drivers, you know, driver asked to to search their luggage. They refused. And of course, they were ordered off the vehicle. Right. They're like, this is, you know, not right. great. So they go inside the service station there. And, they're, they, and immediately their behavior freaks out the service manager there at the station. The person there immediately called the police. They were clutching their luggage, and of course they feared, God, what are they? What if they're carrying explosives or something? Right, shit, yeah, know? good God. So the police came, and they interviewed the women. And while they were definitely the weird, the police said they didn't seem to pose any threat. So obviously no bombs, nothing like that in their right. luggage. But this is where things get very batshit. The two sisters left the station on foot and were seen on security camera footage walking down the median of the M6 highway. In a later interview, their older brother named Bjorn claimed that they were apparently, quote, running from maniacs. <gasps> Didn't get any follow-up on that, Bjorn, but, you know. Weird, Bjorn. They attempted to cross the road, and when they did, Sabina was grazed by a Seat Leon sedan. I'm guessing mm -hmm. a brand not yeah, prevalent here in the States, but yeah. maybe more common there. Authorities from both the highway agency and Central Motorway Police Group were soon on the scene. And there was also camera operators there present because they were there filming for a program called Traffic Cops. Right, right. So yeah. it just happened that they had like all these good cameras. Isn't that so Because the video we saw, it's why it's like, yeah, and we'll get to that video here. We'll talk about that video at the end of the story because yeah. it's wild. Also, this is not just a road. This isn't like a, this isn't a, sub, this isn't a residential street, yeah. anything like that. It's a goddamn, this is a highway. It's a goddamn highway. This is what, it, you know, it's like a three lane or what would it be? Three or six four lane. lane in yeah, total? yeah. It'd be like know. walking down the fucking Eisenhower here yeah. in Chicago. You it's know like what a, I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah. My not God. exactly a, you know, a deserted country road. This They're is in the like, heart of a, yeah. This is at a least main, in America, this is a crime to yeah, even yeah, do. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm assuming it is there too, obviously. Right. So things got weird again when the authorities stopped the sisters. They stopped as they were ordered to and chatted with the police happily and respectfully, cracking jokes and lighting up cigarettes as if they were just having a stroll about a fucking park. What the fuck? So it seemed like the episode was now under control. Yeah, they're like, this is weird that they're fine, yeah. I guess, but it's everyone's okay, so whatever. Like I said, everything up to this point, every time police came to them, they were like, yeah, they're weird, but like they were given the feeling that they weren't a threat. Right, right. Suddenly, Ursula turns and runs oh, into no. highway traffic. In horror, police and onlookers watched as she ran into the side of an oncoming oh. truck estimated to be traveling at 56 miles an hour. Oof. Just then, Sabina sprang into the road as well, directly into the path of an oh. oncoming Volkswagen Polo. And I'm gonna tell you. Oh God. I haven't seen cartoon characters get hit by a car more perfectly than Sabina. I mean, honestly, it's 
It, truly, it is uh, like it was fucking animated. It's almost impressive. Yes. I mean, it is square on, dead on. Wild, I mean, goes up onto the roof. I mean, yeah. like, the producers of this show must have been like, Oh my God. No one's going to believe us that it, we didn't. That we didn't have like up. a stunt devil or yeah. so, double or something. It was, it's a direct hit. But at the same time, everyone's like, this woman's dead. Dead. Oh, yes. And that's the other thing. Everyone's like, this this fucking lady's dead. Yeah. Sabina smashes through the windshield of the Volkswagen before it launches her airborne. Oh, my God. Both of Ursula's legs were crushed. <gasps> Under this, like, truck. Yes. Like a Mack truck. And Sabina was unconscious for only 15 fucking minutes. Oh, my God. Both sisters were alive. An air ambulance had been called. And when Sabina started to drift back to consciousness, she immediately began fighting and clawing with the police yes. tempted, that were trying to help her, spitting at them and shouting, I recognize you. You're not real. Oh my fuck. She also shouted claims about either having her organs stolen or they were trying to steal her <gasps> organs, something like, something about organs being stolen, whether she thought they were trying to or they already had <gasps> something. What the fuck? And they're twins, you know, like what's going right. on? Somehow, she got to her feet and began screaming for police to come help her, which obviously police are there. Yeah, they're trying like, we are, her. that's our intent. She then cold cocked an officer right in the face, took off running into the other lanes as police pursued her. And when she had nowhere to go, she fought the police until they were able to hold her down and get some cuffs on her. Oh my God. Another strange point. After the police had searched the area, they found a number of broken cell phones. Weird. Both sisters were taken to the hospital. Ursula was admitted to treat her legs, obviously. Sabina, wildly enough, seemed completely uninjured. This woman was hit just head on. I mean, she the fact that she wasn't instantly killed was shocking to the, the police, yeah. let alone that she got up after the fact. You know what I mean? Like, right. this is insane. And especially for the other sister, too, her legs got crushed, yeah. but that's it. And she was exactly. still able to, like, she her legs weren't really crushed. Like, she also sh should have died. Exactly. It's This is insane. Exactly. So Sabina was taken to the police station for process. Now, the source makes a point of noting that by now, Sabina was way calmer, chatty, charming, joking around. Her biggest frustration was having to take off some of her jewelry for, you know, to be processed. Okay. And uh, But she was also described as even being a little flirty. <gasps> Excuse her. Or good for her. I don't know. She even said to an officer present there at the hospital, We say in Sweden that an accident rarely comes alone. Usually at least one more follows, maybe two. Okay. Well, that following day, Sabina was released from court after she pled guilty to hitting the police officer with her fist. Right. And was trespassing on the highway. So she, con she confessed right. guilty to both of those. For this, she was sentenced to a day in custody. But as she had spent the night at the police station, it was decided that she had served her sentence mm -hmm. and was free to go. What is unfortunate and kind of shocking, though, is that there had been no psych evaluation on Sabina before she was released. That's crazy. I mean, this woman... Yeah. They should have... I mean, the last... Like, the, the first... Like... What am I trying to say? The least they should have done was some psych evaluations. I mean, this woman should have been fascinating to them. 
Unbelievable. The, without even worrying about her being a threat to anyone else, they should have been like, how is this human being alive well, right now? Yeah, absolutely. Well, now Sabina was free, but she was alone in a strange place. Let's also not forget that she didn't have injuries from being hit square on by a goddamn Volkswagen. Right. So the town she's in specifically was called Stoke-on-Trent, England. And fun fact, that town pops up every now and then when I look at our analytics yes, for the podcast. Yes, I was podcast. just going to say, yeah. You know, our po- it doesn't say where or who, or obviously, but it just, it'll show up, you know, what countries we're being listened to and then more specifically what towns and stuff. And every now and then Stoke-on-Trent pops up. So yeah. hello to whoever listens to us there. We're hello. so happy to have you. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so she's in this town, Stoke-on-Trent. She had with her her sister Ursula's green top as well as her possessions, including a laptop and 1,000 pounds in cash that was in a clear plastic bag that police had provided her with. Okay. 1,000 bucks in cash. It was later that night at 7 p.m. when Sabina happened to come across two men who were walking a dog. These two men were Glenn Hollinshed, a former REF airman, age 54, and his friend, Peter Malloy. So the dog belonged to Hollinshed. Mm-hmm. When Sabina asked the two men if there were any B&Bs nearby, the article says that Hollinshed suggested they go back to his house nearby. And while Sabina was hesitant, she agreed. Huh, this is kind of weird. I want to come back and talk. I, I had put a little note in here to talk about it now, but I'm going to come back and talk about it. Okay. Because I want to get to the, and then we'll just talk about everything weird with this story. I was going to say, just so much of what you just said is seems like odd to me. So let's put a little fork in that and remember that. Okay. The source says that once they had arrived, arrived at Hollinshed's house. Sabina seemed to be on edge and was constantly looking out windows, stuff like that. She offered the men cigarettes only to rip them out of their mouths right before they would light them. So she's obviously acting weird. Yeah, claiming no. that they were poised, they could be poisoned. Don't they could be poisoned? So yeah, she po- okay. So this woman is very paranoid. Right. Well, Peter Malloy left just after midnight. Sabina stayed the night. So jump forward to evening the following day. The source says that Glenn Hollinshed he had made some food and briefly popped outside to ask his neighbor, a man named Frank Booth, mm-hmm. if he could borrow some tea bags. So Frank went and got some tea bags, gave them to. Gave him to his neighbor. And it's said that in less than a minute later, Glenn Hollinshed came staggering out of his house, bleeding heavily. <gasps> he told Frank, She stabbed me. And allegedly his last words upon his death were, Look after my dog for me. Oh no. What the fuck? So Frank called police, obviously. Sabina fled the scene, but she was spotted by a man in his car named Joshua Grottage. Apparently, when he saw her, she was striking herself with a fucking hammer. <gasps> oh my god, that is gnarly. Grottage t- tried to restrain her, but Sabrina struck him with a roof tile she had in her pocket. Okay. She made her way to a bridge nearby and leapt off of it. Jesus. She fell 40 feet down onto the A50 highway below. Oh my god. Breaking her ankles and fracturing her skull. Oh my god. So obviously she goes to a hospital. The what, ver- wait, hold on. What? She's not dead. What? Okay, that ho- we need to talk about what just. She just occurred. killed a guy, beat herself with a hammer, and then jumped off. Hit a guy with a, 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 a like a tile of a roof tile, which is like, where did she even get that? I mean, what happened that night in that house? I mean, could you? Why did he let her? First of all, why did he let her, her stay? I, I don't get Not that. that it's his fault. And I also, get this is just a strange. You don't know who this is. I get She's you. She's probably hot. That's I get you why. taking her to. I get you taking her to a 
you know, a, a place for help or giving her food or clothing. But come on, like in your house, like you especially because she asked for. Didn't she ask for a B and B? Like she was had an. She was willing to pay to stay somewhere. It's not like this was like some homeless person. She he was helping. Like he could have just gotten her a place a exactly. hotel room like or she he could have helped her get herself a hotel room or something well, it's just weird it's just like well then so what was the, and then peter malloy was there for till midnight it's like what was the plan what was your plan were you gonna have like fuck this stranger like i right i, I mean i mean it could have been anything from that to being and to being any. totally to like be totally platonic but, but either way whatever it is anywhere on that spectrum i find it odd yeah well and, and let's be honest a few times now she's been in custody and then released because people be like oh she's weird but she's not a threat so unless there's some like is unless there's something upon meeting her that is so disarming that you are just like oh she's harmless i think she's probably just hot and especially like if she was with her twin sister they're kind of like <laughs> well her sister's not with her now Remember i know but sister? just yeah. in ge- but that helps in general but now she's i think that's probably what it is people weird. are just like there's no way she could be like capable of actually doing Right. Any harm. Freaky stuff. When really she's... Something is is not right. Uh, right. It's very weird. So she was taken to the University Hospital of North Stratfordshire. And on the very day, as you'd expect, that she was released on June 9th, still bound in a wheelchair, she was immediately re- arrested under suspicion of murder. Yeah. Ursula was released from the hospital later that same month, and after spending some time in Sweden, returned to her home in the United States. Ursula was never charged with a crime. In fact, today, Ursula is a member of the Sacred Heart Church in Bellevue, Washington. Oh, okay. Wow. Sabina's trial did not begin until September 1st of that year because it was apparently very difficult getting her medical records. On September 2nd, Sabina pled guilty to manslaughter with diminished responsibility. Every question asked to her, I'm guessing that means by reason of insanity, maybe. Yeah, I'm I'm guessing guessing that's what that means. Every question asked to her, she responded with no comment. And during the trial, the defense argued Sabina was a secondary sufferer of something called, and this is French, so forgive me, I know I'm gonna say it wrong, folly adieu which is French for a madness of two. (gasps) What? Their claim was that Sabina had transmitted her insanity from Ursula. What? In the end, Sabina was sentenced to five years at Bronzefield Women's Prison. The very last paragraph, though, of my source adds something I think is very interesting and I wanted to discuss. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the video Sean sent us, Madness in the Fast Lane, that's what it was called. Absolutely bizarre. That's the video of them, you know, on the street. Also, that title is so disrespectful. I know, Madness in the Fast Lane. (laughs) But go on. On December 6, 2012, some footage was uploaded anonymously to the internet that contains segments of footage many believe was edited from BBC's Madness in the Fast Lane. In the video, two police officers are standing on the shoulder of the M6 highway and both agree that the sisters should be given what the source calls a 136. A 136, according to the source, is a clause within the Mental Health Act that means police can hold a person in custody if it's believed their mental health poses a threat to themselves or others. Right. And it also mandates that that person be detained and receive a mental health assessment. 
Right, and they didn't do any of this. Why this last bit of info is important is because it's believed police requested that the BBC have edited that bit out because Sabina was neither held other than that one night and she was certainly not given a mental health evaluation. Oh my God. And finally, the real reasons why Sabina stabbed Hollinshed may never be known. <gasps> When she was released from prison in 2011, she disappeared. And as far as I could find, Sabina Erickson's whereabouts to this day are still unknown. That is so fucking bizarre. I mean, why didn't they? It's it's crazy that even the officers that were the, just were the first responders yeah. there, they called it out right away that they yeah. needed to do this. And then they just didn't do it. Bizarre. That is so weird. My source for that, I'll say it now, was an article called The Twins Who Ran Into Traffic Before Stabbing a Man to Death by James McMahon <laughs> at Vice.com. So literally, you could see why I wanted to say sure. that. Sure, no, that, that makes sense. But my yeah. second story, okay. my source doesn't do that. My source for the second story is an article called The Strange Story of June and Jennifer Gibbons. These twins. The silent twins who only spoke to each other by Katie Serena in allthatsinteresting.com. This, another excellent source. These are some twins. This is the ultimate twin. This is kind of like the classic. This is the OG twin story. Yeah. This one's more drawn out. This this one about the Ericsons, it's it's short, but fucking intense. And I want to know more. And I oh want to know. Oh my God, what is going on? Also, what happened to those her kids that she was freaking exactly. out about? Exactly. What's happened to Kevin McAllister over I know. there, for Christ's sakes? So our second story revolves around June and Jennifer Gibbons, otherwise known as the Silent Twins. Okay, okay. We love a, we love a, a name. double name, you yeah. know, a JJ. When you're twins, you JJ Gibbs. June and Jennifer Gibbons were born at a military hospital in Aden, Yemen in April of 1963. Nothing was unusual about their births, nor was anything strange about their infant life. Mm-hmm. Just two healthy twin girls. But not long after infancy, the twins' parents, Gloria and Aubrey Gibbons, soon began to notice that their daughters were rather peculiar, mm. particularly once they got to speaking age. Okay. Their daughters trailed far behind their peers in terms of language skills. But what was most concerning was the degree to which the sisters were inseparable. Okay. Now, nothing wrong with you know having a close relationship with your twin or just your sibling in oh, general. Oh, totally, yeah. But the level of inseparability was apparently alarming. It was, yeah, it crossed that line where, you know. Right. Yeah, you gotta cool it. Not only did they keep to themselves, they seemed to have developed a sort of private language oh, that yeah. they could only understand. Oh, their, no. their father, Aubrey, said, In the home, they'd talk, make sounds and all that, but we knew that they weren't quite like, you know, normal children talking readily. The Gibbons family, you see, was originally from Barbados and had immigrated to Britain in the early 1960s. Right. And while Gibbons' family spoke English, even in the privacy of their own home, the twin daughters would only converse to each other in their own special language. And they think at the beginning, not as they grew older, as it grew older, it evolved into their own thing that was completely indecipherable. Right. But they think what it was, what it started off as, was a sped up, adapted version of Bahan Creole. Sorry if I mispronounced it, but they think it was a form of that. Interesting. Okay. Like maybe they kind of like made their own kind of shorthand. Right. right. And, and 
Yeah, exactly. things like that. Okay. But regardless of what it was, the twins would only speak to each other. Life for the Gibbons twins, it must be said, not easy. And not just because of their communication issue. You see, the twins were the only black students at school and mm. suffered severe bullying. This, this bullying, of course, only increased their dependency on each other. Right. Oh, of course. So, they, like, they, yeah. Uh, right. Why would they try to venture out at all when, even, because who knows, maybe they did try a little bit. Right. Who knows? And kids were mean. And, yeah. And, or maybe know. they knew what's even the point of trying to make friends because exactly. everyone's, you know. This is uh, so sad. The bullying got so bad that the school began releasing the girls early every day so they could get home without being harassed. Oh, my God. That's horrible. That just breaks your heart. That is disgusting. By the time they were teenagers, the language that the twins had shared had become completely indecipherable to anyone else, including the family. On top of this, the twins had by now taken to refusing communication with literally anyone besides oh, each other. God, this is so weird. There, This is like, there's got to be some very serious trauma here or yeah. something. I mean... They would even refuse to read or write in school. Many years later, June Gibbons, one of the sisters, would discuss her relationship with her sister saying one day she'd wake up and be her and we used to say to each other give me back myself if you give me back myself i'll give you back yourself whoa yeah. well time went on and in 1974 a medic named john reese noticed the twins strange behavior while he was administering the yearly school sanctioned health check Mm -hmm. He described them as being weirdly unreactive to being vaccinated. Even if a kid isn't necessarily scared of getting a shot, because you know when you're a kid, you're, you're a little scared of shots, but even as right. you get older, you know, no one loves getting a shot. You know right, they, I mean? he, they had like no reaction at all. But yeah. as children, they weren't, they didn't care Very at all. Very weird. He described the behavior as being doll-like and was so concerned that he actually went and notified the school's headmaster, but the headmaster just shrugged it off, saying essentially that, yeah, they're weird, but they're not that weird. Can we stop doing that? I know, right? As a community, can we just, can we, Creep Street, be the pioneers moving forward to stop saying, yeah. it's not that bad. Because in some ways you should do that because sometimes it is like, who fucking cares? Well, just like right. life. Weird in but, a way that's not harmful to your, I mean, God, be weird all you want, be, be yourself. But right. you know, obviously in the sense that like. If a medical professional comes up to you and says, I'm concerned, maybe you yeah. should also t be concerned. Exactly. That's all. That's all. Well, not giving up, Reese alerted a child psychologist. Oh, okay, here we go. Who recommended that they immediately start therapy. And they did. But despite seeing an impressive list of specialists, the Givens twins remained a mystery. In fact, in February of 1977, the twins were seeing a speech therapist named Anne Treharn, and they refused to speak, but they did consent to have their conversation recorded if no one else was present. Huh, odd, okay. For some reason or another, Treharn had the feeling that June actually wished to speak, but that Jennifer was compelling her to keep quiet. Okay. Treharn later said that Jennifer sat there with an expressionless gaze, but I felt her power. The thought entered my mind that June was possessed by her twin. Mm, kind of interesting, too, that that just popped up in her mind. Exactly. You know, that's, I'm sure that is not a normal thought for her to, to jump to. You exactly. know what I mean? It's not like a list of possible exactly. uh, situations. You exactly. know, like this right. is, uh, okay, I'm, I'm listening. Well, it was finally decided that the twins should be separated. 
So they were sent to two separate boarding schools in the hope that, uh, you know, the twins would learn they kind of have to develop their own sense of who they are as a person and become their own people. Right. Well, it was soon clear that this was a lost cause because both sisters became so reclusive to the point they were downright catatonic. Yeah, yeah. The source says that at one point it took two people to get June out of bed, after which she was just propped up against the wall, like fucking Weekend at Bernie's or something. Jesus Christ, yeah. Sometimes people try to do this kind of thing where it's like a, even though this is totally different, but when they try to get someone out of a cult, they just kind of like rip them out of there and they say how terrible everything was there. Right. And it's like their brains just like can't handle it. Exactly. And that's what I kind of feel like with this was like, I under, the intention was good with separating them because they thought like, this is tough love. This is going to force them, blah, blah, blah. They should have known better that these girls could not handle it that fast like they needed to slowly do this or something anyway i'm a certified uh social worker (laughs) and everyone should know that so once reunited the twins became even more intertwined they wouldn't even speak to their parents they'd only write them letters when communication was absolutely necessary Mm, they spent their need Cheetos. Yeah, exactly. They spent their time in their room playing with dolls and would create elaborate fantasies that they would sometimes even record for their younger sister, Rose. Okay, well, that's kind of a good start. Yeah. You see, once again, if I were there, that's what I would really kind of focus the energy on. I would say this is a good start. Rose, by now, was the only person they would even indirectly communicate with. In an interview years later in The New Yorker in June of 2000, June Gibbons said, We had a ritual. We'd kneel down by the bed and ask God to forgive our sins. We'd open the Bible and start chanting from it and pray like mad. We'd pray to him not to let us hurt our family by ignoring them, to give us strength to talk to our mother and father. We couldn't do it. Hard it was. Too hard. Little girls are absolutely wild. Well, what you guys. What's weird is it's this was in 2000. So she's an adult. By right, the, right. It's it, she's painting it as though they wanted to, but right. couldn't. Yeah, they isn't that interesting? To. Like they just there was some kind of block up. Whether that was who, who knows what that was from, exactly. but there was some sort of block that they felt like they could they not couldn't do for it. some reason. Well, one Christmas, the twins were gifted with diaries. This was perfect because they could just fill them with all their thoughts. Yes, great start. Their plays, their their fantasies, their their scenario, their stories they would write. And it really sparked in them this passion for creative writing. Oh, that's great. In fact, at the age of 16, the twins took a mail-order writing course, and they would even pool together what money they had and submit their stories to be published via Vanity Press. Oh, that's so cool. It must be said, though, that the content of the twins' stories was rather concerning. God damn it. I should have known. I was, I'm so naive. I always think like, oh, that's so good. They started writing. That's, they're learning so much and it's absolute dog shit. Of course, I should have known it's going to be nasty. Okay, let's hear it. Most of them took place in the United States, particularly Malibu, and would center around young, attractive people who would commit despicable crimes. Oh, God damn it. Only one of their stories made it to print. One called The Pepsi-Cola Addict which was about a teenager seduced by his high school teacher. 
Oh, fuck. Here's the other thing. It says the the, the content was, I haven't read the, these, so who right, knows? Maybe right. they were deserved. But it, is it one of those things that people write stories all the time that have shitloads of violence? Oh, right. And but we don't call them, you know, we don't, it must be because they already have this history. You, you know what I mean? Right, I, right. I can't imagine they were writing anything worse than what young people would write in a story. Right. I'm, I, yeah, I'm not sure because a part of me is like, yeah, teenagers especially can be super dramatic and really graphic and right. stuff. You know, especially when you're starting out and experimenting with being right. creative and, and all that stuff. But then at the same time, you know, they are like 16 and they, these are the, it, it, it's just, it's hard to be like, but if it was someone else, you wouldn't think it was weird, but right. they did write it. So it is weird. You well, know what it, I mean? Like, right. Well, it is. And it's all about the person. When you do research on a, on a serial killer and then you find out, oh, they had an obsession with horror and medical mm-hmm. textbooks. And it's like, as if somehow that makes sense. And it's like, yeah. okay, I get it. Yeah, maybe in this case, they were informed by those things, but like, right. So does my that. mom's a nurse. I grew up with medical textbooks in my say, home. Yeah. Plenty of them. I grew up, you know, I've, there were scary books and movies and that. It's just funny because I'm not saying that maybe those things didn't influence that person. But just, I do. It is kind of odd that they write, that they're, they're young and they're writing a story about a female teacher seducing a, a young boy. Right. Rather than a, a female student. T- student, yeah, that's kind of interesting. That that's how they wrote it. That's that would be weird to me. Like as a parent, if I read that, I'd oh be yeah, because like, you're like, what's oh, God. going on? Exactly. Yeah. After a while, simply writing about the outside world was not enough. The twins wanted to experience it for themselves. Oh, good, good. Okay. By the age of eighteen, the twins were experimenting. It says with drugs, alcohol, oh, and even committing the occasional petty crime. <gasps> Oh, girls, come on. But the crimes didn't stay so petty. In 1981, the twins were arrested for arson. Oh, my fuck. And placed in a maximum security hospital for the criminally insane. Okay, well, okay. That maybe was for the best. Well, here it's where the twins' reclusiveness was finally confronted. At this mental facility, you know, high security, not very lenient towards this lifestyle of right. we got to be together, you know, blah, blah, blah. So both of them packed full of antipsychotic meds right, to the yeah. point that Jennifer had said it blurred her vision. For nearly 12 years, the girls lived at this hospital with only their diaries for an outlet. <gasps> June later described their stay as, We got 12 years of hell because we didn't speak. We had to work hard to get out. We went to the doctor. We said, look, they wanted us to talk. We're talking now. He said, you're not getting out. You're going to be here for 30 years. We lost hope, really. I wrote a letter to the home office. I wrote a letter to the queen asking her to pardon us, to get us out. But we were trapped. Well, on March of 1993, it was deemed safe that the twins be transferred to a lower security clinic Mm -hmm. in Wales. But upon their arrival, Jennifer was unresponsive. She had drifted off during the trip and wouldn't wake up. After being taken to a nearby hospital, Jennifer Gibbons was pronounced dead. What? Due to a sudden inflammation of the heart, she was only 29 years old. What? For a sudden inflammation of the heart? Here we go. You ready? Uh, yeah. As weird as Jennifer's sudden passing was, June's reaction to it, too, was likewise really weird. This woman who had remained silent her entire life was suddenly talking to everyone around her (gasps) as if she'd been doing it her whole life. Weird. June was soon released from the hospital and by all accounts began living a relatively normal life. I mean, this woman was 
could not live. And now all of a sudden she's totally fine. Exactly. What's so excellent about this source that I read is it doesn't just tell the story of the twins, but it also follows up on how the story actually came to the masses. Mm. As our source puts it, the fact that the public knows about this case is thanks to a woman named Marjorie Wallace. In the early 1980s, Wallace was an investigative journalist for the Sunday Times in London. She was completely taken by the story of these twins. Aubrey and Gloria, the parents, allowed Wallace to visit their home and to observe the twins' childhood bedroom. Oh, okay. I saw their parents and then they took me upstairs. And they showed me in the bedroom lots of bean bags filled with writings, exercise books. And what I discovered was that while they had been in that room alone, they had been teaching themselves to write. I put the books in the boot of my car and took them home. And I couldn't believe this, that these girls to the outside world hadn't spoken and had been dismissed as zombies had this rich, imaginative life. Visiting the twins in prison, Wallace was thrilled when they began to open up to her little by little. While she was happy to sort of be getting this window into the secret that was their lives, she was also frightened by what she was learning, particularly from their diaries. You see, despite the seemingly impenetrable bond between the two twins, Wallace discovered in their writings that each twin secretly bore a deep disdain for the other. Mm -mm, Ain't that the way. And over the last decade, each twin had a growing fear of the other, assuming that the other would harm the other. In fact, June in particular felt as though she was possessed by her sister Jennifer, describing her as a dark shadow and a face of misery, deception, murder. Wow. It was apparent to Wallace that June was much more afraid of Jennifer than Jennifer was of June. Right. Jennifer was definitely the dominant force. Wallace recounted that often June would look like she wanted to talk, but then subtle clues from Jennifer would keep her from doing so. Wow, that's interesting. And wasn't that earlier when they were younger kids? That's what someone said that it seemed like June was being possessed by Jennifer, it was the same. Wow. When the twins were being moved from the high security hospital to the lower security one, Wallace was ecstatic as she'd been fighting for this. But as we know, Jennifer Gibbons wouldn't make the journey. Which is so weird. So it's strange that before they moved, Wallace had a bad feeling something would happen. I took my daughter in and we went through all the doors and we went through the place where the visitors were allowed to have tea. We had quite a jolly conversation to begin with. And then suddenly, in the middle of the conversation, Jennifer said, Marjorie, I'm going to have to die. And I sort of laughed. I sort of said, what? Don't be silly. You know, you're just about to be freed from Broadmoor. Why are you going to have to die? You're not ill. And she said, because we've decided. At that point, I got very, very frightened because I could see that they meant it. Wallace was concerned by what the twins had told her and even alerted the doctors but they told her not to worry as they'd be under close supervision. On the morning of the departure, it's said that Jennifer rested her head on June's shoulders, saying, At long last, we're out. What? And then she slipped into some sort of a sleep and never woke again. Today, Jennifer's death is still a mystery as there was no sign of poisoning or anything unusual. Wow. Years later, June Gibbons is alive and well and living in the UK not far from her family. She's completely become part of society and will talk to anyone. Wow. When asked about why her and her sister stayed silent for 30 years, June says, We made a pact. We said we weren't going to speak to anybody. We stopped talking altogether, only us two, in our bedroom upstairs. Wow. How wild is that? I mean, I wonder 
Why though? Like why did they do this? And why did they decide to hold on to the pact for as long as they did? did especially if one was not as into it as the other. And I mean, it seems like it it wasn't just it wasn't just that they weren't talking. I mean, what I'm interested in is what was going on? Why was did June feel so possessed? by Jennifer and how was Jennifer, How for, then how did they decide that Jennifer was the one to die because they clearly came to the, the conclusion that only one could live, they couldn't both survive. I don't know. And then how did Jennifer just die? She just willed herself to, to die. To die or something. I mean, that this is fascinating. Right? And like there's so much, there's so many weird stories that you hear like this about what twins are able to. Yeah do with each other or communicate or whatever and right. it's like i'm just yeah this is just so so interesting well that's gonna wrap us up for two tales of twisted twins Ooh, baby what a great time that's right well ladies and gentlemen if you want to support the show go to patreon.com backslash podcast please like subscribe tell your friends family loved ones and uh citizens of the milky way my name is dylan hackworth i'm maureen bogey and this is creep street Good night and goodbye. Goodbye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.